Amen, amen. Thank you so much, worship team. That was beautiful. And welcome, church. It is so good to see you here at City Light and to be able to share this morning with you. Hey, I want you to just take a second and think with me. Think of a time that someone said something to you that, and those words have stuck with you ever since. It might have been a word of encouragement. It maybe they were words that tore you down, but you heard them and they are in your head and you can think about them right now. It might have been a teacher or a friend who congratulated you on a project that was well done. Or maybe it was a coach that called you out in the middle of practice and the words that he said stung. My freshman year in high school, we were about halfway through the basketball season, and I had just started getting a little bit of playing time on varsity. I was like the sixth or seventh man that rotated in. And it was one night we were playing Dorchester, which was a rival for us, and I was in on my first rotation. And we were on offense, and I got the ball down in the corner, and I kind of made a jab step, and then I was going to drive the baseline. And the whistle blew, and the ref called me for traveling. The gym was really quiet, and there was one guy, Dorchester fan, that was sitting right behind me, and he just shouted out, traveling, that's junior high ball. He was like an arrow that came out of the dark and just stabbed me right in the heart. I mean, literally, just a couple months before that, I was playing junior high ball. I had just started getting in on varsity, and he said that, and it felt like the entire world knew that I was a fraud and it was a fake. I can't tell you anything else about that game. I don't know if we won or lost. I don't know if I played good or I played bad. I suspect I played bad. But I don't know anything else about that game. But 40 years later, I still hear that guy yelling out. That's junior high ball. When things are going hard for me and I feel like I'm in overhead, I've heard it this week. We've all experienced the power of words from people, words that have hurt us, words that have encouraged us. But I'll be honest with you. In those situations, it's the result of words being powerful. It's not the reason that words are powerful. Let me give you just three quick references from Scripture that are going to show us why words are powerful. In Genesis chapter 1, God, the phrase God said is used 10 different times. God speaks and his words are so powerful, so complete, and so full that they become real. His words, his words made our universe. He made our words, our worlds. And in the sun and the stars, he created everything that you see and can touch. Mountains, oceans, seas, clouds. All of that was created because his words are so powerful that they became real. Second example in John 1, 1, it says, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. Christ is named the word in these verses. Jesus is the king of kings, the Lord of lords, and he takes on the name of the word. He was born a man. He became the living word, and it is only through his perfect life, his death, and his resurrection that we are provided salvation from our sins. Last example, the Bible is called the word of God throughout scripture. In Hebrews 4.12, it says, for the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. The Bible is God's word to us. It reveals everything about him that we need to know and understand to receive his salvation and to be transformed into the image of his son, Jesus Christ. All we need to know about him is contained in his word. Words are powerful because God made them powerful. He uses them to create, to save, to train, and to transform us. We are built to hear his voice. 
We are created to hear his words and respond to him. It would be easier to approach this passage for all of us if we were to say, hey, they're just words. They're really not that important. But we need to understand and know that God created words to be used for his purposes. And in our sin nature and our flesh, we take words and we use them for our own. And in today's culture, I'm just not talking about the things that come out of your mouth. I'm talking about social media posts, your responses, those emails, text message, any of those, all of those are your words. I apologize for my voice today. I had a cold this last week, and yesterday I decided to just settle right into my larynx. Um, I, I will tell you, I feel a lot better than I sound. I will also tell you I would trade anything to be the exact opposite, to feel terrible, but to sound good, so I apologize for that. But we are going to be talking about our tongue today, and that tiny bit of flesh between our teeth is powerful and unruly. The tongue or the mouth is used as a, in this passage as a metaphor for our words. Nothing compared to the strength of our legs and our arms and muscle, but our tongue is so powerful because of its ability to be able to form words. Our speech or our words are mentioned in every single chapter of James. Chapter 1, verse 19 and verse 26. Chapter 2, verse 12 chapter 4, verse 11, and then chapter 5, verse 12. And at the center of his letter, James spends 12 verses to talk about the topic of our speech. Some parts of this passage are going to stick out and they're going to kind of be convicting to us because it is very difficult to tame the tongue. And we're going to find out the damage that can be caused by an untamed tongue. But the goal James has had throughout this book is to take the knowledge of our faith and to be able to transfer that into actions. He is not shouting at us from a high place that he is using, he uses the word brothers twice in this passage. And numerous times he uses the word we. He wants to make sure we understand that he's including himself into this message and that he loves us. He's not throwing stones at us, telling us that if we don't improve with this, we're in a lot of trouble. He is sitting down with us calmly, softly, but very truthfully telling us that our tongue is unruly. But if we learn how to control our tongue, if we will have made significant strides in being able to gain greater knowledge and be able to demonstrate our faith. So we start with James 3.1. Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that those who teach will be judged with greater strictness. Honestly, I wish we could spend a lot more time on this verse. There is so much that is happening in it, but we're only going to uh, spend just a minute or two so that we can cover the rest that we have today. I believe that James is connecting chapter 1, verse 26, uh, which says, If anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. He's connecting that verse to the following verses, and, and he takes just a second to stop and to address teachers specifically. He, as, as if he's saying, teachers, no one understand that all of us have a problem with our tongue, but you especially need to be guarding your tongue because you are going to be judged with a greater or judgment of that. Teachers have a greater responsibility. The term judged in this passage is not one of condemnation. 
It's an evaluation to a standard. Teachers are going to be held to a higher standard. The reason, because as a teacher, you have the greater potential for damage and destruction. The mistakes of teachers have the ripple effect that can go out further and further, causing more and more destruction. And I use the term ripple effect, but really it should be considered a tsunami effect that happens that comes from teachers. On a number of occasions, the letters in the New Testament are specifically written to address false teaching that is happening among the people. For instance, Acts 15, 24. Since we have heard that some persons have gone out from us and troubled you with their words, unsettling your minds, although we gave them no instruction. In Acts chapter 15, there have been a group of men that have come and started hanging around Jerusalem, but then they have left and they've gone out and they're starting to preach to the Gentiles. And James, uh, it means that when they were left with no instructions, they had no instructions from James, who was the leader of the church in Jerusalem, and that they were out preaching a false gospel to the Gentiles. They were telling them that they needed to uphold Mosaic law, that the men needed to be circumcised, and that they were preaching that they were not saved by grace alone, but by your works. It was so bad that James and the council came to a decision that they had to send out Paul and Barnabas to that area, and they sent them out with full authority and approval from the church to be able to teach, to be able to correct what was happening. Teachers will be held to a higher standard because in their position, they have a greater responsibility for their words, and their words have a greater effect on people. The men that you see that stand up on this platform, they know this truth. They do not take the responsibility of teaching lightly or for their own glory. They prepare, they pray, and they pursue God in their own lives and in their sermons. There is a process of accountability that happens that they submit their script to the elders and to others so that they can give them feedback and correction to make sure that they are preaching the gospel fully and truthfully. Teaching is not a time for a person to puff themselves up or be a distraction from God. It is a time to be used to be serving him. If I could give you one piece of encouragement, it would be pray for your pastors. If you have never or rarely prayed for your pastors, pour over this verse and see what you get. If you occasionally pray for your pastors, but you're not sure if it's really important, I can tell you it is incredibly important. Pastors are not supermen. They are just like you and me. Pray that God will protect them from physical harm and from spiritual harm. They, are, they need to have a prayer that they are sensitive to God and that they will respond to him. Your first part of the sermon shouldn't be showing up here on Sunday morning, sitting down and listening to the guy preach. Your first part of the sermon should be praying for him throughout the week and then coming here to hear him preach. And so James takes a moment to talk to the teachers, but then he brings us all back into the table in verse two. For we all stumble in many ways. And if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man, able also to bridle his whole body. The word stumble in this verse is reflecting to our sin. It could easily be read, for we all sin in many ways. And if anyone does not sin in what he says, he is a perfect man. We sin with our words. If you're thinking to yourself, yeah, I sin with my words. I may curse now and then, but it's not like I really did anything that's wrong. Look at Ephesians 5, 3, and 4. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you, as is proper among the saints. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. How we speak 
is right there along with our sexual sins and covetousness. And covetousness is when we put idols into our lives. How we speak ranks right up there with any sin that you would consider to be serious, murder, theft, and adultery. And I'm going to take just a a quick side note here. All sin is serious. I want to say that again. All sin is serious. It's you and me that write out lists about sins and that we put at the top, these are serious sins. And then we put sins down here that we say, yeah, these are bad, but they're not as bad as those. The reason we do that is because in our sinful nature, we want to justify ourselves. In our sinful nature, we want to judge other people. But I'll tell you, God doesn't do that. God sees all sin as black, period. There is no gray in sin when God looks at it. So how we speak is listed uh, right along with those big sins. And then in James finishes verse two with, if a man could control his tongue, he would be perfect and could bridle his whole body. In this verse, it opens up just a couple of thoughts like Justin was talking about. It brings to mind that Christ is the only man who has controlled his tongue. Christ was sinless in his words and in his actions. He was perfect. And we're gonna see that again later on in this passage. And the second is a declaration of our problem. That out of our sin nature, our tongue is the hardest to control. Let that sink in for a second. I know my sin nature. I know the things that I do. I can't even recount to you all the sins that I've committed to my life. And this verse is saying the hardest ones, the ones most common, the ones most uh, destructive are the ones that come out of my mouth. Our next point in these next verses is that our tongue is small, but it is a big problem. James 3, 3 through 6. If we put bits into the mouths of horses so that they obey us, we guide, our, uh, we guide their whole bodies as well. Look at the ships also. They are so large and are driven by strong winds. They are guided by a very small rudder wherever the will of the pilot directs. So also as the tongue is a small member, yet it boasts of great things. How great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire. And the tongue is a fire a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, straining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of our life and set on fire by hell. A bit is a small piece of metal, maybe eight ounces or so that fits right into the mouth of a horse. And then it is held by leather that, fl- that pulls over the head of the horse, the bridle. And with that little piece of metal and that little bit of leather, a rider is able to control a horse that's eight or nine feet tall at its head and weighs six or 700 pounds. I did some research and the largest container ship in the world is over 500 feet long, almost two football fields, and it carries nearly 2,000 shipping containers. And it is guided by a rudder that is only about 270 square feet, which is not much bigger than this stage. In verse 6, James tells us that our tongue is a world of unrighteousness. That phrase is talking about everything that is evil and wrong with the world. Selfishness, pride, arrogance, anger, judgment, hate, partiality, lust, lies, everything. All of that, everything that is wicked and evil in this world is inside of us, and then we go spitting it out of our mouth. Matthew 15, 18 through 19. But what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart, and that defiles a person. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, and slander, our words. 
Our tongue can set fire to the entire course of our life, meaning that they come back and around and around. And that fire is from hell, no less, which means it's almost impossible for us to outrun the damage that our words can cause. They continue to come back, continue to burn down our relationships, continue to burn down our future, and our words can continue to haunt us for the rest of our lives. I'm sure that you saw the news in the uh, media this last week about the fires that were taking place south of Lincoln. You know, they were rapidly spreading. There were hundreds of people that got involved to try to be able to put them out. Two or three of the uh, firemen were injured. I believe two or three houses were burned to the ground. It's just a demonstration of the power of a fire and how quickly it can spread and how much damage it can do. And our words are compared to that. The smallest little spark that ignites a wildfire that, wildfire that spreads uncontrollably. But I want you to notice in these analogies that we've been given, there is someone who controls the bit and someone who controls the rudder. In verse 3, the bit is in the mouth of the horse so that the horse will obey the rider. And in verse 4, the rudder is there to allow the pilot to steer the ship. Our point here is that the tongue is meant to be controlled. Our tongue or our words are meant to be controlled, but if they're not, we see in the following verses the damage that can be caused by them. Our words will set ablaze the entire course of our life. It will stain our body. We are given the hope that we can control our words, and then we're given the warning that if we don't, what is going to happen in our lives? Our tongue is small, but it is a big problem, and our tongue is meant to be controlled. We're going to move into verse 7 and 8, and we're going to see our biggest problem that we have, and that is the tongue cannot be controlled by man. For every kind of beast and bird, of reptile and sea creature, can be tamed and has been tamed by mankind, but no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. Verse 7 reflects back to Genesis chapter 1, verse 28, where God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on earth. God gave us dominion over animals. He has given us authority and responsibility to tame and be over any animal. Lions, tigers, bears, cats, dogs, cows, dolphins, orca whales, pigeons, parakeets, even tortoises and lizards, we are given dominion and authority over them, and it is right and good that we can tame them. But then in verse 8, we are told that no human being can tame the tongue. Notice that it says human being, which excludes Christ. He was fully man, but he was fully God, and he was the only one that had perfect control of his tongue and that he demonstrated his life as, sin, as sinless. This passage is about you and me. Because we were born with a sin nature, and God never gave us dominion over our tongue. We do not have authority over it. We cannot control it. It does not belong to us. As much as we would want to control our words, we can't do it because our words reveal what is in our hearts. And in our heart is a sinful nature. Our words reveal to anyone who can hear us that we are a sinner and that we are in need of our Savior, Jesus Christ. It's impossible for us to be able to do this alone. We're going to come back to that thought in just a second, but we're going to finish up with the last three verses here real quick. James 9 through 12 talks about the actual words and shows us that the tongue is full of destruction and blessing. The tongue is full of destruction and blessing. 
With it, we bless our Lord and Father, and with it, we curse people who, may, who are made in the likeness of God. And from that same mouth came blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things ought not to be so. Does a spring pour forth from the same opening both fresh and salt water? Can a fig tree, my brothers, bear olives, or a grapevine produce figs? Neither can a salt pond yield fresh water. Do you hear the echo from Paul in Romans chapter 7 where he says, For I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. How can at one minute come a blessing from my mouth and then the next a cursing? How can I offer fresh water which brings life to someone and then turn around and offer salt water which brings death? I have given advice to people that has been helpful and peaceful to them. I have given, uh, uh, spoken to them and brought life to them. But I also know that I have turned around and I have said things out of anger and lashed out. And I've seen the hurt of my words reflected in the faces of the people that I love. How is it that I can bring life, but then I bring death to their spirit just right after that? If the tongue is meant to be controlled in verses 3 and 4, but we can't control our, ver- our tongue in verse 8, what are we supposed to do? I mean, we are stuck in that transition or back and forth activity that comes up in verses 9 through 12. We throw up our hands and we cry out defeat with Paul. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? If we stopped here, we would be stuck and dragged down in defeat. But we have the same answer that Paul had. Who will deliver me? Jesus Christ, our Lord. It is because Christ had perfect control of his tongue and was sinless that we have an answer. It is because Christ died on the cross and completely paid the penalty for our sin that we have an answer. He alone can deliver us. He alone can transform us. So the answer to how do we control our tongue is really simple. We need to fill our hearts with Christ, to fill ourselves with his love, his grace, and use his words to be able to give life. If our mouth is supposed to reveal what is in our heart, if we fill our heart up with Christ, then we will be fresh water and we will provide good fruit. But it's kind of silly to walk away from James and think that you're going to go home with the Sunday school answer of let Jesus do it. The whole point that he has been making throughout this book is that we are to transfer our knowledge of faith and into action. If Jesus is going to do it, but we're a part of this too. James is calling us to have action that reflects our faith. Jesus is the only one who can control our tongue, but it's our tongue that needs to be controlled. You can see that there has to be some kind of relationship there. There has to be some kind of process in which Jesus comes into us and is able to control our tongue. So what are we, how is that going to work? I want to go back to the first metaphor that James gave us in this book where he talks about the horse and the bridle. I had a great conversation with a good friend here recently, and he talked to me about what it is like to break a horse He explained to me that when you're breaking a horse, the first instinct of the horse is to hate the bridle and the the bit. To the horse, the bit and the bridle are scary. They're confining, they're restriction, they cause pain and discomfort in their lives. They will do whatever they can do to rebel against that bridle. 
And when the rider pulls on that bridle, the horse is going to whip its head. It's going to turn. It's going to buck. It's going to do anything it can to get rid of that. It wants to remain wild. It wants to remain untamed. The horse is going to keep doing that until at some point in that process, the horse submits. Then when the rider pulls on the reins to ask the horse to go left, the horse turns to the left and the rider lets go of that rein and that tension that the horse feels in its mouth is released. There is a relaxing that happens. The horse makes a decision to submit to the rider. Or you could say that the horse learns to submit to the rider. And when that happens... When that horse accepts that submission, there is a deep connection that happens between the rider and the horse. The process of communication is so subtle, and I want to say it is so intimate that they really become to come together and they become one mind. Cooperating together, they can do whatever is needed at the exact moment it is needed. When a horse is truly broken, you will not even see the rider give commands. It'll be just the gentlest pressure on their body or just the gentlest pull on the rein and the horse will immediate turn or do whatever it is asked because it is ready and willing to obey. It may be kind of obvious, but in this analogy, you and me, we're the horse. Christ is the rider and he is working to train us and to remove our wild and untamed heart. We will often rebel and fight, but we are best when we submit to him. It is not a submission of defeat where we are just battled down or pushed down. It is a submission of union with Christ. By submission, we are drawn into a deeper relationship with him. We are able to feel his love, his protection, his wisdom more greatly. When we submit to Christ, we always gain. We never lose anything. So what's that gonna look like in our daily lives? I'll be honest with you. There's a lot of times in your day, my day, where we probably should just keep our mouth shut. But because of my sinful nature and the things that are going on in my heart, I will open up my mouth and I will start talking. Those are the times when we will start to gossip or to tear somebody else down. We'll lie. We'll swear. We'll make inappropriate jokes. We'll speak with arrogance, envy, strife, or malice. At those moments... You need to be listening to Christ and submit to him. When he tells you to stop talking, stop talking. You don't have to explain anything to anyone else. Your first step is to stop talking and then move on. There are also times when we probably should, not probably, there are times when we should open our mouth, but we clamp it shut and we refuse to speak Those are moments in Sunday morning when we stand up to sing that we don't sing. We should be singing God's praises. We should be encouraging each other in love and good deeds. We should be a blessing to others, and we should make much of God. We should pray pray to him, crying out for God's love and his mercy. And most importantly of all, there are times when we should speak the gospel to someone else, but we will clamp our mouths shut, afraid to be able to move on. At those moments, you need to listen and submit to Christ. When he tells you to talk, open up your mouth, and he's going to give you the words. You don't need to explain yourself to anyone. The first step is to start talking and stay put. My last thought on this, and then we're done. Try as you might, 
you are going to sin with your words. I'm not saying that to discourage you, but I just want to be truthful with you because all of us have that sinful nature. And there are going to be times when our sinful nature comes flying out of our mouth and we are going to say things that are going to be wrong. We are going to say things that are going to be hurtful. We are going to say things that are going to be sinful. And in those moments, you still need to submit to Christ and confess. 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, he, God, is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. The center of the gospel is forgiveness of sins. That is exactly what Christ was doing when he was on the cross. His death and resurrection was to bring us into an internal relationship with God the Father and to cleanse us from the sins that we have. Don't miss it. Don't let it go by because you refuse to open up your mouth. Confess to him and receive his cleansing. And then as we talked in verse 6, that our tongue is going to set fire the entire course of our life. And this fire is from hell. And the words continue to come back. They continue to down, burn down our relationships and our future. Our words continue to haunt us throughout our lives. But if we confess to each other and seek forgiveness from the people that we have hurt with our words, then the flames of our words can be extinguished and we can be free from their damage. James 5.16, looking just a little bit ahead. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The center of the gospel is forgiveness and grace. It is not something we do. It is what Christ has done. For every bad, for every sinful word that we have, God has a word that he speaks out over us to overcome that. When I say to someone, I hate you, God says, I love you and I love them. When I say those are people are broken, God says, I've healed you. I am going to heal them. Our sin does not catch Christ ill-prepared. He is our Savior, and we can never outrun Christ's mercy and love, even with our words. Let's pray.